following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Um, as you know, over the past few weeks, um, <clears throat> we have been, um, the pastors have been taking turns uh, preaching through Matthew. Um, and we have enjoyed it. Hopefully you have enjoyed it. Um, however, uh, you know, you got to hear from the youngest elder, and you got to hear from the oldest elder, and now you get to hear from the most bearded uh, elder today. Uh, that's my claim to fame. Uh, <laughs> so that's all I got. Um, so anyway, although after Jordan's comment earlier about Minesweeper, I'd say he's given John a run for his money for the at least oldest, oldest elder there. But... Uh, <laughs> We uh, were excited about preaching through this passage together. We're reminded of what a great Savior we have, um, what an amazing uh, God we have and Savior in Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> as you have heard from the other pastors over the past few weeks, Matthew presents Jesus as king. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the rightful one to sit on the throne of his father David, the one who has the authority over health and physical life, over the natural laws that govern the world, and he is the true authority and final judge of spiritual powers. This is Jesus. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 25 through 30. It says, At this time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In our text today, we will be taught that Jesus not only has the authority over health and the physical world, the natural laws and spiritual powers, but also as the Son to whom the jurisdiction of all things has been given by the Father, that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. As the Lord, the Master, the King, He offers to the weak and the burdened true and lasting rest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that You would open our ears to hear Your truth today. Jesus, it seems that often our allegiance to you is challenged. There are so many things vying for our attention and loyalty. We know from your word that these things will not satisfy and that we are crushed under their heavy load. But you offer something far more. You offer rest. Our subservience to religious requirements and the religious expectation of ourselves and others the pursuit of the American dream has left us lacking 
You alone can satisfy. You alone can bring us true and lasting rest. True shepherd, would you guide this weak under shepherd to teach your truth today? Would you make my feeble lips to speak your truth in love? May my speech be with grace today, seasoned with salt, so that it may be, be a benefit to those who hear. Holy Spirit, would you open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe the truth? Would you convict us of sin and cause us to respond in faith and repentance? Amen. Verses 25 and 26 say, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children, to babies. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. These verses start, if you look right at the beginning of verse 25, these verses start with the little phrase, at that time. This phrase is being used to mark a connection uh, between what has come before and what is in this text right here, 25 through 30. If you look down at 12 verse 1, you'll see the same phrase, at that time. This then will tie what we see in the beginning section of chapter 12 with this passage as well. So you can see this, this verse, these section of verses here, they work kind of like a hinge. They should be a hinge both a little bit, there's this loose connection of time, but there's also a hinge in how we think about this material fitting together. So this material from, from chapter 11 and even some of the material before is whittling down to this point in 25 through 30 and then also bringing on with it. In order to understand it, we need to see what happens in 12 and following as well. So that being the case, and um, if you've heard uh, us preach to you, we know, you know that we go to the text. We see what the text has to say for us. We try not to, as best we can, import our thoughts into it. So given the connection of this passage with what is before and what is behind. Children's workers, if you can hear me, I'm sorry. We have quite the tasks set out for us this morning. So in the beginning of chapter 11, Matthew records that John the Baptist is in prison. You can read that there in Matthew 11. Because of his position, he has been incapable of seeing for himself Jesus' works. John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we seek for another? John is asking a yes-no question. But as all good teachers do, Jesus doesn't answer the yes-no question. Rather, he provides a list of prophetic proofs that leaves John, leave, he leaves it in John's court to see, if the, see these proofs and then believe. Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Note the last statement as well in verse 6, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Most of those whom would, who would hear this message of Jesus are going to be offended by him. We read in chapter 23, Chris read it to us earlier, Matthew 23 the scribes and Pharisees would be offended 
by him. They would, as Paul says, stumble over the stumbling block. They would break, break their ankles on Jesus, whom they could not believe in. We find that to the Jews, he is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it is foolishness. But yet this Jesus says and offers a blessing to all those who would not be offended by him, specifically to John. After this, John's disciples head back to take him Jesus' response. As they are leaving, Jesus highlights the ministry of John and in verse 14 compares him to Elijah, saying that he is the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5 through 6, and that he is the Elijah who was to come. Matthew uses the comparison with Elijah as a segue to show what the religious leaders and unbelieving Jews listening to him are like. He says in verse 16, But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and it didn't make you sad. So what is Jesus saying here? John asked for confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah for whom he had been called to prepare the way. Jesus replies with a clear prophecy fulfilling proofs that he was the one for whom John was looking. Based on Jesus' accolades of John, it should be assumed that John, upon hearing, would believe. By sending his disciples, John was willing to believe without seeing. He had heard the flute, and he was ready to dance. He had heard the dirge, and it made him sad. He heard the truth of the signs of the Messiah. It impacted him, and he believed. In contrast, the righteous elite and the vast majority of the crowds that followed Jesus would not dance to the music or cry upon hearing a sad song. They would see the mighty works of the Messiah and reject them. As they misinterpreted John's solitude as demonic, they would claim the friend of sinners as reprobate. We see that in verse 18 of chapter 11. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They misrepresented John's solitude as demonic and they would claim the friend of sinners as reprobate. In verses 20 through 24, Jesus pronounces judgment against the cities that saw the mighty works of the Messiah, but rather than repenting and believing, they continue to reject him. Their unbelief incurs greater judgment than even the wicked city of Sodom itself. Isn't that interesting to ponder how God views unbelief? We would think the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins of Tyre and Sidon, the acts, the practices, the society that was involved in there would, you know, and did reap the, the, the judgment of God upon them. And yet God says it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than the judgment that you are going to receive for not believing in me. You saw the signs that the Old Testament prophets prophesied and said, when you see these things, here I come. When you see these things, here comes the Messiah. And yet they rejected him. In contrast to this unbelief, however, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, this is verse 25, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You see, left to ourselves, we cannot come to saving faith in Jesus. Left to ourselves, we reject Jesus and incur his wrath. However, we see in this passage that the revelation of the Father to mankind was within his plan. Look at verse 26 and see what it says. Verse 26 says, yes, Jesus speaking to the Father, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was God's gracious will to reveal himself to mankind. He revealed himself in the old days through the prophets, but now he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. He has made himself known. The creator of the universe has made himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the one that they have before him, and yet they reject him. This is the one that they see the signs that he does and say, he's a, he's a glutton and, and a drunkard. This partying fool, we'll have no part with him. However, we see in this passage that the revelation of the Father to mankind is within his gracious will. He says that he will reveal the Father to those whom he chooses. He says, but this is gracious. But this gracious Father has not chosen to do it himself. Rather, he has, as we see in verse 27, handed all things over to his Son. The Son then bears the full authority of the Father and reveals the Father to whomever he wishes. As we have seen in the past few weeks of messages, Jesus, the Messiah, is the promised king. He is the rightful heir to David's throne, proven by his power, and now we see in Matthew highlighted the expanse of his rule. His rule is over all things. So Jesus, with the confidence that comes from his authority, reveals the Father. He is the only one who has the ability to reveal him, truly reveal him in this way. But whom does he choose to reveal the Father? To whom? Not to the wise and understanding. Not to the Pharisees or the religious elite. But rather, he reveals the Father to the low in estimation, the little children, the weary and heavy laden, the sinners. Those are whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. For as verse 27 says, no one knows the Father except for the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The pathway to the Father is now through the Son alone. The exclusivity of the gospel is through Jesus alone, the one who bears the full authority of the Father. The next verse is one of the sweetest and most compassionate displays of the heart of the Savior that we see in the New Testament. I just made that up, but I think it's true. I'm sure someone could say that about the passage they just read and studied and preached, but I do believe that this passage is special in the fact that we see Jesus on clear display. We see the quality of this king that we knew was coming, and now we see what he's like. After he proclaims his authority over all things, his first order of business is to lessen, to lighten, the load of his people. He continues, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On its own, this passage is wonderful. We are reminded that Jesus is compassionate. He cares about our burdens. He promises rest to the weary. But there's a little more to this context. If we miss it, we will not understand the full significance of the passage. While studying, there I was sitting at my kitchen table, and the Spirit brought to mind 1 Kings 12. I, uh, I had never seen this passage before in this light. I'm sure other people have. Um, but it was one passage where, and you hear me trumpet this every once in a while, um, it's so wonderful to read the scriptures, and if you commute a long ways, listen to the scriptures. We have the technology to do it. Saturate yourself in the scriptures because um, out of it flows life. And this is one of those passages where the Spirit brought it to mind because um, he had convicted my heart to be studying the word. In First Kings 12, why don't you go ahead and turn there. Turn back to First Kings 12. In this passage, Solomon has just died. Upon his death, all Israel came to Rehoboam, David's grandson, Solomon's son, and entreated him. In 12.4, they say, the people say to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam then takes counsel with the old men, and they reply, Similar to what the people had requested, they reply in wisdom, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words, good news to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But in his foolishness, Rehoboam rejects the counsel of the old men and opts for the young men's counsel. And he replies to the people in verse 14, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined, he learned, he disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Upon hearing this, Israel rejects him and the kingdom is divided. This kingdom promised to David, for his son, the one who would come and who would restore all things, who would make all things new. The people go to Rehoboam looking for him and they don't find him. They look for that son who would lighten that heavy load, who would make all things new, who would make service of a king tolerable yet again. They were looking for the new David and they didn't find it. You know why? Because it's Jesus. Because it's Jesus. It is interesting to me that the come to me passage in Matthew is not found anywhere else in the Gospels. It would make sense that the reason that Matthew takes care to include this is linked to his desire to unmistakably identify Jesus as the true son of David who came to make all things new. As we remember what Chris taught us in the very first message about the genealogy of Jesus, 
was to signify what he was going to do throughout Matthew in presenting Jesus as the long-awaited king, the son of David, who would restore all things. He shows Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of the Messiah, son of God and son of David. In 1 Kings 12, the counselors ask for a king who will first serve his people, speak good words to them. The people ask for a king who will both lighten their load, who will make bearable their burdens, and where the other kings refuse and selfishly use the people for their own gain, we see Jesus coming on the scene. And he says, come to me, you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus thinks in the eternal. Remember, he is God. He was the one who rested on the seventh day with God because he's God. He is the one who died on the cross and has the ability to say, come to me, I'm the one. He knows the end from the beginning. He is Jesus, the almighty God. He calls them to willingly take his yoke upon them. And rather than disciplining with whips or scorpions, he is going to discipline them by his own example. He says, learn from me, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. Doesn't that remind you of Philippians 2? The quality of this Savior Jesus. The one who would give up the grandeur of heaven and come humble himself as a servant, become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The reason his load is light, the reason that he can say, my yoke is easy, is because he did it. He accomplished the task for us. Think of a horse with a yoke upon his shoulders, plowing, plowing a furrow down the field. And think of a little foal with a little yoke behind him, the little fake plow pulling behind. So easy to pull it down that pre-furrowed row. That is why the yoke is easy and the burden is light, is that the great God of creation, in his son Jesus Christ, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, came as a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And what is the result? What does the text say the result is? You will find rest for your souls. Isn't that the longing of the hearts of humans? True and lasting rest. Man has been longing for it since Genesis. Man sinned and the curse resulted in work only possible by the sweat of his brow. Every time he works, he sweats. And even those who live a life of ease and maybe pleasure, the torture that comes by maintaining that life or by concerning themselves with whether it will be there tomorrow or, or what happens when it's gone consumes them. Man works now by the sweat of his brow. He cannot enjoy the full facet of rest. 
where once he could look at his accomplished work and be satisfied in it as the creator did his work for six days and then rested, the full realization of that is gone. Even when God offered rest to his people through the law in reinstituting Sabbath rest, it still had longing for what was lost and what is to come. Even in man's best days, he struggles with rest. So a question remains, what kind of king can promise this rest? The answer to that question is in the next passage. As we have seen, we talked about before, verses 25 through 30 work as a hinge to the surrounding verses. We saw how they linked to what came before with John, how that showed the quality of those whom uh, God will not reveal himself to, and then also um, who he will reveal himself to. And who does the revealing? It's Jesus himself. And now we see another in verse 12. We see another, uh, chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, we see another at that time, which links us then to this passage. And then we see what's following on here. So first, they, they're hinged, this hinges two thoughts. First, who will be offered this rest? And this, we, we covered that. And then who has the authority to grant this rest? And this is what we're about to cover. Notice again the at that time, we mentioned that. 12, 1 through 2 records the account of Jesus' disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. As they walk, they become hungry and pluck heads of grain and eat them as they walk. Let's read this passage together. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, or for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that the Sabbath, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this passage, as an American, my thoughts of property rights make me uncomfortable with this situation. You have people walking through your field, eating your food that you worked hard to make and to, to plant and all of that. But, of course, this practice, is, this is a different society. So we, we transport ourselves back into here where that was actually part of the law. It was lawful for them to walk through grain fields if they were on a journey, pick an apple, pluck some heads of grain, eat. Okay, And so what we have here is they are within the bounds of the law, but they are not within the bounds of Pharisaical tradition. So the issue here is not stealing grain, but rather Pharisees' addition to harvesting, loading, heaping weight on this law of harvesting on the Sabbath. How fitting was it to have verse 1130 just prior to this say that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light as the Pharisees are heaping heavy burdens on the people. So rather than being a delight, as King David called it, 
the law has become a heavy yoke of stipulations. Jesus rebuts the Pharisees' claim that his disciples are unlawful with a story that bears striking similarity between he and his disciples and that of David and his men. In reference to 1 Samuel 21, Jesus retells the story of David and his men who come to the priests at the city of Nob when they are fleeing for their lives from Saul. They ask the priest for bread and are given the bread of the presence, which is taken from before the Lord and given to them because they were hungry and the priests had nothing else to give them. Check this out. The priests valued mercy over sacrifice. Remember in this passage, the priests valued mercy over sacrifice when they shared the offering that was intended for God with those in need. It was unlawful as Jesus said, for this bread to be eaten by anyone besides the priests. But David is never condemned for breaking the law and eating it. Jesus also says that the priests themselves are incapable of keeping the Sabbath as they work to perform the duties of the Lord. What is interesting about this passage, and you notice when he says here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If we're familiar with Matthew, we turn back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, Jesus, it says in verse, Matthew 9, 9, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came that were reclining with Jesus. They were resting with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does, your tax, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are weak. Verse 13 says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus had already told them, go and learn what this means. And now he says, and if you would have known what this means, you would understand what I'm saying to you today. So at this point, Jesus turns their attention to himself. He turns their attention to himself and says, in the previous verse there, something, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. In this moment, by the authority of all things, the authority of all things that were given to him by the Father, by the fact that he is the true fulfillment of the law, he claims that he is the pinnacle of worship to the Father. Just as the center of worship was the temple, he is now the temple into which all who would know the Father must come. In this passage, Jesus shows us, as we read in verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would have not condemned the guiltless. In this passage, Jesus shows that not only are his disciples guiltless in breaking the Sabbath, but in fact, they have come under the yoke of a new king whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And just as his father showed mercy in not condemning David when he was hungry, neither does the son with his disciples over a matter of Pharisaical tradition. God's people are no longer under the yoke of the expectations of the Pharisees whose stipulations were greater than any could bear 
We learned that this morning in chapter 23. They heaped heavy burdens that neither them nor the people could bear. No longer under the law that they could not keep. Rather, they are serving a new Lord. One that can give true rest pictured in the Sabbath, but only realized in Jesus himself. For as in verse 8, the king announces that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. We then come back to our original text and can ask the question, who can offer true and lasting rest to his people? None other than the king of rest, the Lord of the Sabbath. And what, you might ask, does this rest look like? Although, I could always use a good nap. That's not what this is talking about. I'm sure some of you are maybe taking advantage of that right now. Um, Rest is the peace that comes from knowing what is required of you has been completed. Rest is the peace that comes from knowing that what is required of you has been completed. There is no worry. There are no cares because it has been taken care of. We see this in Genesis 2-3, that God rested from all the work that he had done. God looked back at creation and knew that it was very good. It wasn't lacking anything. He didn't have any outstanding action items. He didn't have a bunch of reminders in his phone of things that he didn't do yet, of things that he was lacking. He rested because it was finished. What else do we see Jesus do? We see Jesus, he says, he goes, he bears the sin of the world. He bears the burden of your sin and my sin on the cross. He dies and right before he dies, what does he say? It is finished. He completed his work. You know what he does? He goes And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. He rests because it's all accomplished. He did it all. And he can rest because he knows that what he did was complete. We see David finding rest when he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone cause me, O Lord, to dwell in safety. But what about us? Doesn't it seem like we live in a world of unmet religious expectations, unfinished business, undone projects, dissatisfied expectations of life, imperfect families, difficult marriages, disobedient children, a world of turmoil and not rest? Yes, that is the world we live in but we have been called to something far better. Something that we can experience in this life and fully realize in the future. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the giver of rest, calls us today and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises rest to those whom he has called to himself. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Christian, don't live as though you are yoked to anyone else. Don't forget that this Jesus who you are under 
your yoke to him and nothing and no one else. He is the one to whom we will give account. His yoke is easy because he has gone before. He has done the work. The trail has been blazed. The field has been plowed. We are following, learning from him. In this, we can be at rest. We know that his work, we know his work and can look back on it and see that he works all things together for good. In this, we can rest. So I would say to you, find your rest in him. If your life is hurried and worried, as we are all tempted to be, we are taking on a yoke of self-glory in that we think that if we worry about these things rather than trusting God for them, that they'll work out. We think that if we are concerned with these things, if we try harder, that these things will go away. The most efficient in all of life, not that we shouldn't pursue efficiency, but the most efficient in all of life's tasks end up managing their efficiency and are concerned about maintaining their efficiency. The yoke of efficiency has caused them to heavy a heavy load. Those who struggle with uh, the worry of sickness, sadness, that yoke is not yours to bear. Jesus says to cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. He doesn't want you to bear that load. Why? Because he went to the cross for you to bear that load so that you wouldn't have to. He wants you to take off, shirk that load, put on his yoke, and pull for him. Because his yoke is easy, his burden is life, because he has done it before. He made that way. And just as John straightened out the path for the Lord, Jesus has straightened out the path for us as we walk this Christian life. So Christian, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To the one who does not know yet, Jesus, are you overwhelmed with concerns today? Are you burdened with the weight of sin and don't know what to do? Jesus calls to you today, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you loaded down with sin and see no end in sight? Are you, do you feel the weight of a sinful life upon you? that you cannot be free from. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He wants to lighten that load. He has done it on the cross. He is ready to give you salvation. So I say to you, repent and believe the gospel today. Jesus alone can free you and in his gentleness place a bearable load upon you and give you rest. The peace that you long for is found in him. We are out of time, but I'd like to challenge you with this. Read Hebrews 4, 1 through 13 sometime this week. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. May we strive to enter his rest. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today grateful for your word. We're thankful for your spirit's work in opening our minds to the truth today. We pray for his convicting work in that he shows us our sin and our need for you. As believers, as we see ourselves heaping on yokes unnecessarily, may we throw them off 
May we be convicted of that. May we push them aside and be reminded of the yoke that you have placed on us. The yoke that is easy and light because you bore our sin and our blame and our shame. And we can rest in that. We have this rest now and we look towards the rest in the future when you continue to make all things new. We can be at peace knowing that you are in control because of what you have done in your life and in your death on the cross. May we learn from you. I pray for those unbelieving today and even those that we will have interaction with unbelieving tomorrow. I pray that they would turn in faith and repentance, that they wouldn't harden their hearts as those who rebel. Your spirit would crack them open and it be as a knife that you promised that your word is, cut deep into their souls and open them up and you would illumine their eyes and their minds to the truth of the gospel and they would be saved and that you would place this gentle yoke upon them that they might know what it is to rest. For we know, Lord, rest is not found in some Middle Eastern religion, some meditation, because all that leads is to self-thought. And in ourselves, we know that we are sinful, we are despicable, we are dreadfully wicked, and we can't even know the depths of the wickedness of our heart. But yet we know that in you, we have a burden that is easy and your load is bearable. You tell us, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. May we walk, may we take up your yoke today and enjoy the rest that only you can give. Amen.